When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the southernmost point of Dorne to the lands of always winter and what is west of west and the shadows in the east, this is Casterly Talk. Lessons from Game of Thrones and a world of ice and fire. We've got uh, a lot to get to today, my friends. Hello, I'm Ken. You know me. Step inside. Got a lot to get to today. We are going to talk about the humanity of the hound, Sandor Clegane, and his journey through HBO's Game of Thrones. We also got a cool what-if call. But before we get to that, we actually have some news. Some Song of Ice and Fire news. The news, is it the news we're all waiting for? Well, some of the articles that ran after this information came out would make make you think we got a, a release date for, for the winds of winter. Not so much. As, as with anything in life right now, right? Or just... In life altogether. Get a headline, dig a little deeper. Going to George R. R. Martin's blog, not a blog. Uh, we see what you did there, George. He put out an entry on June 23rd, 2020, in the year of our Lord of Light. Uh, he uh, put a, a, something out there uh, titled Writing, Reading, Writing. He did a little reading. He's talking about some of the books he wants to read. Uh, or, or, you know, he, he talks about the book The Glass Hotel uh, by uh, Emily St. John Mandel. He says, recommends that. Ah, but that's not why we're reading this entry, George. Come on. I mean, good for you. Use your, use your power to put the attention on other books. That's great. But what about the ones that winner? That's all we want to know about. Well, the headlines have said, we'll have you believe the book is coming out next year. That's, that's that's hopeful. It's not true. That's not actually what he said. So he did talk about, though, uh, that the forced uh, isolation has helped him write. And it's funny because when the pandemic quickly became a lockdown here in the States, that was one of the questions that kind of floated to the top of the pop culture landscape and zeitgeist, right? Like, oh, this is horrible. Lockdown's horrible. But at least George R. R. Martin will finish the book, right? Well, turns out, I guess that wasn't a joke. It was kind of true. He's been plugging away. He said he, uh, he finished a new chapter yesterday at the time of publishing this blog. Another one three days ago. Another one the previous week. And he talks about, hey, he's, you know, he's in good health relatively for an out-of-shape guy of 71. Dear God, can we send him some special vitamins? I just want him to finish his vision of of, of the books of the, of his story, and that is no, that is absolutely, if you know me, not a shot at HBO or Benny Alvarez or anything. I just don't want the books, which is a different version of the story, which is how it is, and totally fine. I don't want it to be finished by anyone else. I want that is this is his story, his world, and this version of all of those things, right? So. Man, I'm really rooting for him to take this home. Let's pray. Seven blessings. Good health. 
to George R. R. Martin there. Um, but he says um, the fact that he has got some chapters done and made some steady progress, uh, that this does not mean that the book will be finished tomorrow or published next week. It's going to be a huge book, and I still have a long way to go. That makes me just think of a lot of things. A lot of things. It also makes me kind of laugh about some of the conspiracy theories out there that he had the books finished and he was holding on to it until the end of the show. There was some kind of agreement. And look, I got to tell you, I can really get pulled into those conspiracy theories. I'm always fascinated with a good conspiracy, but I generally don't follow them down the path there. But that one... I don't know. There was just something almost kind of fun about it after a while. He clearly did pull back a little bit from the show, I think, after season four, and even, you know, no longer writing a script a, a season. And he often said that was more for the book and the fame of the show kind of knocked him off his path, his momentum. I buy all that. I, I definitely think that's not, he's saying it. It's, it's true. But I would put on the tinfoil hat a little bit myself. And it's okay. It's okay. I. I still think I I look I I don't definitely think don't think there was some agreement don't think he's been holding on, but I do wonder a little bit if if just the the whole just what the show became and what it was and he's talked about how it's been a distraction a wonderful distraction that he uh, does mostly enjoy but the fame of it all is not something he'd set out to to become a famous author uh, and he's had a long career before that uh, so there's some truth to that I would think. I think he enjoys attention, though. I've seen him get the attention of parties, right? I think he enjoys it. Who wouldn't? It's tough not to. It's tough not to. But I can always kind of, I could always kind of see the idea that hey, hey, he just wanted to. Maybe there was while the show was going strong, and and just part of the conversation almost daily in terms of the of, of the fandom worlds and the geek worlds, that maybe he just needed to kind of disconnect from his story, his version of it. He has talked often about. You know, the writing of Winds of Winter, you can't help but kind of be influenced with some of the characters by the actors and some of the performances that you're seeing on TV week in, week, week out, year after year. It, it happens to us. I can't read the books and not picture Lena Headey. I, I, I can't not picture Richard Madden as Rob Stark. I can't. I just, I, I've, I've tried. You just can't. They are so intertwined. They're so connected. And so it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it's not a huge leap of logic to think that's what that would happen for George. So I, I've just always wondered if there's been a little bit of, I need to step away from this book a little bit or slow it down or uh, it's a number one, it's a focus, it's the number one focus, but I just make, I need to make sure I'm not writing the show. I'm writing the book, if that makes any sense. I don't know if that's conspiracy, uh, tinfoil hat theory time. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I could see it and unless he's answered that. And even then, not that he's he's a pretty forthright guy, um, for better or worse, in some of his interviews. And he's he's one of the most interviewed people in pop culture. You, you click those YouTube videos. I've been playing some of the clips here. They go for days and days of just various times over the years that he's been uh, on forums and panels and sit down interviews and all those things. And and I think every interview, he, he he's a really good interview. I would say his voice is kind of relaxing, number one, but I mean, he just, you know, he's interesting. He's sometimes all over the place. Um, sometimes he's just a goofy Gus, but that's fine. It's all good. It's interesting. But um, all that to say, uh, all that to say, um, 
He's, he's working at it now. And that statement, it's going to be a huge book, and I still have a long way to go. I, I don't want to get negative. This is, it's, uh, there's a 2% part of my brain that got a little mad when, when I read that for the first time. Because, you, yeah, you know, you've been working on this one for a while, George. You know, we know you took your time with all of them, and you keep taking more time between them. Uh, that's fair. We're okay with that. We want that. But it's going to be a huge book, and I still have a long way to go. I'm like, what? This is, and we talked about his writing process and how he doesn't write with outlines, and he can write himself into corners and write himself out of corners and back into them and forks in the road. He does it all. And this is an example of, you know, if he had a little bit more of a, I don't know, and I don't want him to hold on to the plants, but you know what I mean. If he just, if he knew a little bit more where he was going, maybe this wouldn't be the case. And right now, it just seems like he's exploring his options as an author with the characters as he writes them. Uh, I'm not criticizing because guess what? I can't do what he does. <laughs> it is what it is. You just got to have patience. But I want to hear that. It's going to be a huge book. There's still a long way to go. Well, you've known that for a while. <laughs> you've known that for a while, George. Get writing. But he does talk about he just can't write as much as he used to. And that, that's the a, that's a truth. He's not 35. He's not the prime of his life, virile, strong human at the typewriter. He's got a, he's, he's tra- and that's probably why the travel and everything and the show took a lot out of him. As you get older, it's just the way it is. I'm recording this right now with like an ice pack on my lower back and a weird lower lumbar support thing in my broadcast chair. I almost decided to cancel this show today. So you can only imagine George R. R. Martin trying to get this done at 71. Good on him, man. Good on him. Age is a number, and we're all rooting for him there. This is the big thing here, though, the lead-up here. This is the behind, beyond the clickbait. He talks about being heartbroken when Khan Zeeland was forced to go virtual due to the pandemic, and he had to cancel his plans, what he calls exciting plans, for a long trip down to Wellington. But he says there's definitely a silver lining in that cloud. The last thing I need right now is a long interruption that might cost me all the momentum I have built up. And you know what? Those are words to my ears. I understand it. I this you're hearing this episode a little bit later on a Friday night or over the weekend, where whenever you're listening to it, it 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 came out a little bit later than planned because I, um, you know, I lost momentum on my work day because I stopped to have some lunch. And I was like, I don't want to go back to work. So again, I don't understand all the things George R. Martin's going through because I'm not a talented author working with this entire world. But I, I, I hear you, George, and I feel you. But this is the final thing he says here. I can always visit Wellington next year when I hope that both COVID-19 and the winds of winter will be done. That is music to my ears. It should be music to your ears. But it also, it also speaks uh, to the actual truth of the story. And all those articles about the winds of winter will be next year. He hopes that it will be next year. First of all, he hopes that COVID will be gone or at least less of a threat or changed or whatever it is. So there's a vaccine, all those kind of things, right? That goes without saying. He hopes that first. Second, that the book will be done. And even then, he's not saying January 1st, 2021. So we should all continue to exercise some patience, pump the brakes. But I do appreciate George giving this Pretty honest, he always does, but this pretty honest update of what is going on. I honestly don't think he is playing with us, though, you know? 
going back to even kind of theories or anything. I know I I'm sh- I know he enjoys the attention. It goes without saying. I don't fault him for that. But I think he'd love to have this done. I think he'd love to have some of the work finished. Moving on to the next chapter. Ooh, but I'll tell you. It does not bode well for the seventh book. I'm telling you, that's... Whew. Get this one out. 2021. Mid-2021, let's say. And he immediately starts working on that, but he's also got to finish Fire and Blood 2. Book 7. Dream of Spring. 2035. <laughs> it's insane. And it's insane, right? And you laugh and you think that's kind of crazy here in 2020. That... 15 years from now. But 2011, Dance of Dragons, if I would have told you then, 2010 years, a decade from now, the the next book would come out. You would have been like, that's crazy. But going back to Feast for Crows, what was that? Off the top of my head, I kind of, 2005? Eh, going to be uh, six years. Nah, nah. You know, um, it's that's insane. It's insane to me. I, I am looking up uh, when that came out. 2005. Wow, I would have won that trivia round. October 17, 2005. So Dance with Dragons. Then comes out. And uh, what are we looking for that one there? Let's actually confirm. Let's actually do the math. July 12, 2011. That's it's just weird to think. Time, time's a weird thing. All right, I don't get I don't want to get hung up on that. Thanks for the update, George. Let's get uh, let's get to it. Uh, looking forward to reading it. Looking forward to diving into it. And also, I was thinking about it. Looking forward to going uh, review it. I've been poking around the books um, a little less after I moved. Got to get the books out again, but. I just I'd been in the old uh, where I was living in my old apartment. I just had like Feast for Crows and Dance of Dragons around, and I would just pick up and read a chapter, read a half a chapter, read what I could, uh, just to kind of refamiliarize myself. And we covered some of it here on Casterly Talk, just uh, especially reading Feast for Crows and the Cersei stuff, just kind of like fresh, like fresh insights for me going back. So I'm excited to start doing that as, uh, as we get closer to winter winter, but I'm not going to do, I, w- I will not do a full on. Let me research and read the books or read parts of the books or study up on the books until I know we have a release date. Cause it's going to be some homework, fun homework, but some homework. Nonetheless, we're going to go to a great. What if here we talked about justice for Bobby B recently, Robert Baratheon, uh, was he always uh, destined to be a bad ruler? Little uh, what-ifs in his life are always interesting. I think there's a lot of interesting what-ifs to emerge from Robert Baratheon because he's such an important figure to the start of everything, which means some of his decisions or things that could or did not happen to him could could change the story as we know it completely because he's there at the beginning of it. But this is from our friend Eric Hey, Cannon Caster Talk. So I called in earlier this week, but I wanted to call in again after listening to the latest Casterly talk about Robert Baratheon because um, I literally ran out of shows to rewatch. So I popped in Game of Thrones season one and it got me thinking about a what if. And my question is, what if Robert and Cersei's 
first child, Robert and Cersei's only child together, would have lived. Um, it's a little different in the books in regards to this child and what Cersei does, but as far as on the show, do you think it would have changed anything? Now, I don't think it would have changed the way he treated her because he thought Joffrey, Tobin, and Marcella were his children. He still treated her terribly, but story-wise, I think it definitely could have changed some things if that child would have lived. What do you think? All right, great call, Eric. Great what if. Yeah, dealing mostly with show only here. Uh, the... Uh, baby, the boy, I believe they would have had a block of hair. Didn't survive. It definitely, you know, and it gives you the impression that changes the nature of the relationship. Great point by Eric that even when he thought he had children with Cersei, Robert still wasn't the best of fathers and and um, best of husbands of uh, to to Cersei. So, um, yeah, that's a great point. Of that, that wouldn't have changed. Robert, Robert is still flawed. Robert is still troubled. But I think just in terms of, of plot, in terms of machinations, I think this would have been a big kind of grenade in the room. That, number one, my thought goes to this. If, if the child is is born and lives and, and Cersei, Robert is being Robert, but Cersei is who she is, troubled and flawed as she is, she is a very protective mother, a certain point of view, she's a tremendously loving mother. And that, uh, back then when she was, she was, she was younger. Um, and let's not, I'm not even here to factor in the Maggie, the frog prophecy of, you know, gold will be their shrouds. Gold will be there. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not worried about that. I'm just saying if she's got this baby in her arms and, and Robert is starting to go the way of Robert, she might've felt something for Robert, as she says, she might have wanted to make it work, but it wouldn't have changed that. But I think it might have changed her. Now, does she still end up with Jamie or continue with Jamie, whatever uh, that might be? Yeah, yeah. And then what does it do to them? What's it do to Jamie? It's not his son. A lot of what kept them together fueled their fires and motivated them to do bad things came from the mutual protection of their children. So does Jamie still have that that kind of drive? The things he do he does for love, is it still the same if it's for Robert's son? I don't know. I think he's still dedicated to Cersei. And if if that continues to play out, uh then yeah, I I I can see Jamie Lannister still doing still doing some bad things for his sister love. The question is next for me, the question is, is, you know, do they though then produce Lannister offspring, right? Does Joffrey, Tom, and Marcella, do they come along? Is that still in the works? Did Cersei turned to Jamie following the death of that child and that drove them on, drove them to, in their minds, con- confirm and consummate their weird love. <laughs> and, uh, not judging, not judging Jamie Lannister and Jamie and Cersei Lannister. And may- maybe a little. I just, it's a tough one for me to accept, all right? Okay, okay. Um, so, yeah. Does... You know what I mean? Does does at what point I think it gets back on track 
is my point. So I'm, I'm stumbling to get to. Does it get back on track? Jamie, Cersei, their children. And what do their children think of this brother of, with black hair? Not knowing, you know, still thinking Robert's your dad. Um, but what do they think about it? What is that relationship like? What does Cersei... Again, I think motherhood would change her because it did change her, as it should change anyone. Does it change her earlier? And does she still have that connection? And does she have that internal battle? She has, let's say it's it's Marcella. Let's say it's Joffrey. Tommen obviously a little later. But jo- if, she has, if she has Joffrey in, his arm, in her arms, she's got good old Robert Jr. over there. Does her... And she knows Joffrey's hers and Jamie's. Does that change her uh, love and affection for Robert Jr.? That might be in a question. I still think it goes that direction. I think it might go haywire. And I think, quite frankly, horrible things could probably happen to Bobby, Bobby Jr., Bobby too, and maybe at the hands of Jamie and Cersei. Weird, t- weird to think, tough to think, gruesome, dark. But at some point, do they then try to remove Bobby Jr.'s, we're calling him, out of the way? And I think in that world, and as Robert Baratheon gets worse as a king and worse as a husband, I still think you end up in the same spot in a weird way. Of all the what-ifs we have, it's it's one with the tough to say because how much it would change Cersei or could have changed Cersei at the beginning. But I still think, for me, you pull it all out and pull those strings we end up in somewhat of the same spot. But I love thinking about it. Love thinking about it. All right. Let's take a quick break. On the other side, the humanity of the hound. It's Casterly Talk. I'm Ken Napsuck. We'll see you then. Hey everyone, my name's Tommy Terry Green and I wanted to let you know about a podcast I produce called On The Ward. Each episode in this six-part miniseries goes behind the scenes of a secure forensic psychiatric hospital featuring interviews with the staff that work there every day and most importantly, with the patients who are currently under section, which means they are legally detained for the safety of themselves and others. You can find all six episodes of season one on Apple Podcasts and Spotify right now. Just search On The Ward. Thank you. Hey, it's Alden Diaz here to tell you about Octo Radio. It's an interview show that I do exploring the different passionate Star Wars perspectives from artists, writers, crafters, and even other podcasters, plus even some people straight from Lucasfilm. So you can come hang out on my podcast island and celebrate the Star Wars ties that bind us together. Oh yeah, what the pork said. You can follow us everywhere on social at A-H-C-H-T-O Radio. That's Octo Radio. And follow me at A-D underscore Strider. For the best in pop culture art, sleek designs, and some of the best brand logos around, shop G9 Design on Public and represent the electrifying art of Janine Bryce with a shirt, wall art, and more. Go to tpublic.com slash user slash G9 Design. And while you're searching the G9 Design storefront, check out Janine's show, It's a Wonderful Podcast, available right here on Anchor and wherever podcasts are found.
Welcome back to Casterly Talk, the 67th edition of Casterly Talk. I'm Ken Napsack, and we are going to be diving into the humanity of the hound here in a second. But first, our quote of the week. Something I've been wanting to do just uh, weekly, pulling a quote from the books, the shows, the world of Ice and Fire, and just highlighting it. Sometimes it might have everything to do with the topic. Last week said a little bit of that, and this week's does too. Other, other times it might just be a fun quote from the show, or maybe even about the show. I did want to, these, I do want these quotes to always kind of focus on what the characters say, but this one, I just saw it, and I always go to Wiki of Ice and Fire, shout out to them for their work putting the quotes together. I saw this one, and I went, ah, this kind of factors into what we're talking about today. I want to dive into it. It's from George R. R. Martin. George says, in real life, the hardest aspect of the battle between good and evil is determining which is which. Yeah, and that's part of the appeal of Game of Thrones. It makes me think of that that old saying, every villain is a hero in their own story. And that's a great way if you're a writer or a producer, director, and you're, and you're crafting a world and crafting characters. It's something uh, you definitely want to have in built in. Doesn't mean that the character, the villain... Um, is always sympathetic. I would argue in Star Wars, she Palpatine is the bad guy through and through. But Kylo Ren, Ben Solo, someone who has a point of view or some real world experiences and pains that you can understand, at least see where they're coming from, even if you're rooting against them, or perhaps it's a reason for you to root for their redemption. The Hound has a lot of these. He's without a doubt one of the more popular characters on a show full of super duper uber popular characters the hound does jump out the reason this came about is we got a great call we're going to play it here and this one got me thinking about the hound and this is why we love your calls and your questions and your thought starters to us via the anchor app do so join the growing list of wonderful folks like alden diaz and eric monroe and addy and many 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 others over uh, the course of this show and daily thrones before who have uh, joined the conversation and just really got me thinking. Got some of the panelists here thinking about deeper things in Game of Thrones, or sometimes it's just fun, silly things. It all works. This call came from Nick, Nick Kittlesved. I probably said that wrong, and that's coming from someone with the last name Knapsack, who's uh, spent an entire lifetime trying to explain how to say that name to people. Uh, but Nick had this great call. Wanted to play it right now. Got me thinking here about our friend, the Hound. Hey, Ken, I just finished my rewatch of the show. And this time through, no character stood out to me more than the Hound. And no scene was nearly as impactful to me as that scene in the bells when Arya finally calls him Sandor. Uh, my question for you is, what do you think the ultimate moral of the Hound is? To me, he seems like he's the perfect personification of this idea that war and violence uh, takes your humanity. And all throughout the show, we see him constantly trying to get his humanity back, but constantly being unable to because of what's happened to him and because of what the world he lives in is. And obviously, George R. R. Martin would have grown up during the height of Vietnam when he would have seen real life veterans coming back and really struggling with these issues. Uh, is that kind of what you think that he's all about? Or is there something else that you take away from the Hound's story? Thanks. No, thank you, Nick. What a wonderful thought started there. And I think the loss of one's humanity is definitely a central part of the why of the hound. 
We're always interested in the why of the choices of the creators uh, in the show, of the show, of the uh, decisions that the characters make. And and we're interested in what George R. R. Martin is definitely putting out there with these characters. And and you're right, the tie, tying it to the Vietnam era where, where Martin was... Uh, was uh, uh, alive and well, and and he talked even on an interview recently about being out in Chicago during that time and the protests and all those kind of things. And so he he definitely would put some of that into it. And it's definitely this is what the world can do to you, and that factors in so much. And we did talk a couple weeks ago. We even played a little bit of the scene, and we're going to play it again here. Uh, the final moments of Arya and the Hound, which is what Nick is referencing to, and I, I think that's definitely in that moment. I think it's it's a it's a big key thing. I also think there is something about finding your purpose, finding why you're still here despite it all, despite who you might be, and where can you find that purpose? And there's and there's this theme of resignation. It's change, but also resignation to things that you feel you can't change, and we'll explain. All that in a bit here, uh, maybe not even explain. It's just got me thinking, and I want to talk about it. But that's a lot of what I've seen going back, thinking about the Hound, thinking about the big key moments as he changes through the show. He's one of those season one characters, episode one, two, three characters. Uh, uh, Jamie Lannister's a great example of this. The moment you see Jamie gets off the horse, he's got the head of hair, he's the dashing knight, but you don't immediately don't like him, and he pushes Bran out the window and look where he goes, and, and we can talk about that kind of, uh, the why of Jamie down the line too, but the hound's like that as well. Now he's got the cool hound's helm, I liked that. Love wearing the replica one that can float around offices every now and then, it's great. But, he's a bad guy. He kills Micah. He's with the Lannisters. Boo, hiss, boo. But slowly, but surely, and I'll argue, sooner than I think even we remember, this is why full rewatches are always important, the Hound starts to change, or he starts to show his layers. And I think it's really, it's just really interesting. And interesting to see where it goes. So we're dealing mostly with the show, of course, but uh, that's just because his story's complete. The show's complete. It's easy to talk about there. We'll see what happens a little bit more in the books, but I think it's still relatively the same in terms of uh, the purpose and the why of the Hound. We might get a lot more Gravedigger stuff, but, you know, and we'll, will it end with a, a fiery fight up there in the, in, in the Red Keep uh, with dragons overhead? Eh, maybe. I think they're still pretty pretty good shot, but they could have been show only. We'll see about that. But let's dive in. Let's, we got to go back to the beginning. We got to go back to the beginning of his life uh, where he's burned very young. And we don't really we get the version from Baelish, which gives us a picture of what it is. It's, and it's in the episode the first time we really see Hound versus the Mountain. Right. So my first thought is we talk about one's loss of humanity. Did the Hound ever have a chance to have that humanity? It was literally burned from him. I mean, he didn't have a chance. That's his start. That's the brotherly love that he feels. That's also what he feels from his father. I mean, it's 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 a bad start for him, right? And I think we should hear a little bit about the Hound's past. And when he finally kind of talks uh, talks about it, his point of view on it. It's always the key, right? 
I'm thinking of Jamie and Brienne in the uh, in the in the in the tub in the in the bath uh, and and hearing some of the truths uh, from Jamie and, and hearing some stuff from Brienne, right? And you and you hear you hear their stories, not the rumors, not the whispered rumors from Varys or Baelish or anyone else. You hear from them, and you get to hear directly how it affected them. So the Hound had a bad start. Did he ever have a chance? Let's hear him talk about it here with Arya. You say your brother gave you that sword. My brother gave me this. It was just like you said a while back. Pressed me to the fire like I was a nice juicy mutton chop. Why? Thought I stole one of his toys. I didn't steal it. I was just playing with it. pain was bad. The smell was worse. But the worst thing was that it was my brother who did it. And my father, who protected him, told everyone my bedding caught fire. There's there's some there's some some Emmy uh, worthy speech uh, performances there right from uh, the Hound. Uh, every character kind of has uh, has that big Emmy Emmy winning speech moment, right? He, that's his, and I love it. I love when you when you watch it, you see especially his his anger at just like why once you ask why, like I, I was playing with he thought I stole his toy. That was not it. Not the case. He knows the truth. He knows the truth, and the pain is uh, mostly actually about his father, and then it was his brother, and so he has no sense of pain, and he has now a horrible, brutal sense of the world that he's in. This is why I say when I talk about the hound and the loss of one's humanity, it, it was lost then. He didn't have a chance. He buries his pain in his action, uh, and he buries his pain in who he is. He is maybe not as big as the mountain, but he is pretty darn big himself and pretty good with a sword. And that's how he can make his way through the world. And he has a bloodlust that cannot be quenched. He's a killer, as you'll often say. And I'll point out that everyone else is as well. well. He has an understanding of this world. I I still think it's it's perhaps uh, better than others. Uh, though it's very cynical and it's very dark. I think a lot of the characters in Game of Thrones that kind of have, I mean, I don't even say cult followings, but just a little bit of extra love. And I'll throw Tyrion in there, Davos in there as well. They're kind of these uh, characters, I'll even, Aemon Targaryen I'll even put in there as well, up at the wall. They just kind of have this, everything crazy is going on around us. But let me just tell you the truth. And it's, a truth that takes into account not different sides of the arguments per se, but I, I say a 360 degree view of the entire situation. I think the hound has that as well because it was again, I, I don't know, pun intended, pun not intended. It's not fun, not funny, especially for the hound. But it was burned into him. 
literally. And he has a reminder of it every day and how everyone saw who he was. The world around him, he looked out there and I said, I know what it is and I know how to get through through the world. And he buried that pain and turned it into who he is and turned it into that action. I don't think he really has, per se, a heart of, the, heart of gold, at least not at the start. But one of the things that changes to me in The Hound is he tries to find his way. He wants to find purpose, right? That's one of the things, too. I talk about resignation. He's resigned to who he is, resigned to, well, even if I want to change, I can't. He then tries to change. But I, a sense of justice starts to emerge from him, which is really interesting because he, he does some brutal things, especially early. Uh, Micah, the butcher boy, right? But he's he, not defending and condoning at all, but he's in service to Joffrey, and he doesn't care, right? I don't care, whatever. I just do what the little shit wants me to do, and I, and I get on with my life. Uh, he, he's not connected, doesn't care. But a sense of justice does start start to emerge, I think you, you really first see it on display when he defends Loris against his brother during the jousting tournament. But he doesn't care for Loris. He's not doing it for Loris, but I think in... I've always interpreted that as... First of all, I think he's happy his brother is unseated from his horse, but he sees a little bit... Go with me here. He sees a little bit of, of Loris... In him, uh, a little bit of himself in, in Loris in that moment, if, if you know what I mean. Where the mountain, the mountain lost, the mountain's angry, and the mountain's going to try to, quite frankly, kill somebody and get away with it. Because he knows he would. So there's a little bit of justice in there. But he's, again, he's not motivated completely of, ah, that nice guy Loris, I'll save him. He doesn't give a crap about Loris. But he just doesn't want to see the mountain get away with something again. And it's the first moment on the show you're like, whoa, this guy's, there's something going on with this guy. And you've just heard Baelish's story, right? So you're already getting a sense of brother v. brother, right? It's picking up, but it's it goes beyond just the how, when, the what. It's the why. Why do we hear that from Baelish? We, we, we can focus on the details of what happened to the Hound, but go go to the moment we just played, which happens a little bit later of the show. We, we go beyond the details to the why of that moment, why it hurt and why it formed the hound's life so much there again just thoughts here just go along with me on some of this stuff here uh next big moments uh, we see him um we 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 see him with uh with sansa uh, uh kind of along the on the way next i'm going i'm jumping all i'm jumping jumping some time through the season but end of season two battle of blackwater bay um even before that actually take it back even before then some of the stuff with sansa so some of the sweeter moments if you will with sansa um I don't even know if it's how much it's for Sansa, but again, more against Joffrey, more against Joffrey getting away with some something. Even at the end of season one, when they're looking at Ned's head up on the on, on the pike there, and uh, and Joffrey hits uh, Sansa and she's bleeding, and, and and doesn't the Hound? I'm trying to recall that moment or the next where Hound gives her just like, hey, as Susie says, it'll it'll go easier. Again, that's not that's not right that's not correct but you could see that's kind of the hound's point of view at one point just like this world sucks this world sucks sansa just don't fight it just go with it that's what's gotten me through it and that starts to change and that starts to change probably more he sees joffrey getting away with things that remind him of what happened to him and sansa who i think he feels much like 
baby hound, Sansa doesn't deserve it. So that justice starts to form. Uh, then his own trauma unseats him from the horse of his uh, of his of his of his being, of his past. Uh, the the Battle of Blackwater Bay, the fire. I love the shot. I love that. I love the Battle of Blackwater Bay. This is why I I, I still say it might be my favorite battle in the show, and that's not to be arms crossed, counter to popular opinion type of uh, thing. I think so many other battles look more amazing. They have more budget. They had more time to shoot them, more time to shoot them the way they wanted. We know even George R. R. Martin wrote that episode of Battle of Blackwater Bay, made some of the changes, a lot of them budget-related, changing the battle from day to night, all those kind of things, uh, the, the amount of ships, uh, you know, the, 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 what the, the strategy was slightly different. But that battle still has so much going through it and set the tone for the great battles to come. That battle, the Battle of Blackwater Bay, is full of so much of the why, of the whys of Game of Thrones are in that battle. And and the hound, it starts with the hound. I mean, there's a lot going on, but the first one with the hound is seeing the wildfire and that look on his face of just... I love that moment. Roy McCann is so good at just the read. You see, it starts to unlock everything. It starts to not just unlock fear of fire, fire bad. Yeah, we know that with the hound. But what's behind that? What's the why? It is the trauma is there. It's on the surface and it bubbles over and explodes into his big fuck the king speech, which is great. And that leads to the, uh, moment with uh, Sansa, which is one of my favorite moments when you're talking about the journey of the Hound. Uh, And we're going to listen to that one here. Started it a little early. Sansa's going into her chambers now. (laughs) Play by play. The lady's starting to panic. What are you doing here? Not here for long. I'm going. Where? Some place that isn't burning. North might be. Could be. What about the king? He can die just fine on his own. Take you with me. Take you to Winterfell. I'll keep you safe. Do you want to go home? I'll be safe here. Stannis won't hurt me. Look at me. Stannis is a killer. Lannisters are killers. Your father was a killer. Your brother is a killer. Your sons will be killers someday. The world is built by killers. So you better get used to looking at them. You won't hurt me.
hurt you. This sequence is some of the best two minutes in the show, without a doubt. Great Santa stuff in here as well. We find a little bit of strength when she does not turn away from him, something she has done throughout the show to this point, even with some of the things he's done to help her. But we talk about the loss of humanity. Going back to Nick's call, Nick's question, I think this is that statement. This is the Hound saying something that is true. Everything he's saying about who is killers and who will be killers and the world being run by killers is true. He's resigned to that, though. And he has good reason to come to that point of view and lose that humanity. He's lost it. He has no sense of it, no sense of getting back to any any feeling of being a fully functional human, full of compassion and empathy, fears, weaknesses, joys, joys. When has the hound ever had joy? He never had a chance to. So this scene is very important. I think I think it is it is it is too. Nick's point of, of, of is what's the purpose? A lot of purposes in all these characters, but the hound, the this is what happens when you lose touch with your humanity. But what can you do to get it back? And this is, you know, to me, he doesn't go to Sansa's chambers necessarily to do this. She finds him in a way. Does he know she's going back? I don't know. I don't know those questions. Those are more hounds and what's. It's the why of him being there, and it's the why of what he says. And as a viewer, as a fan who, especially at this point, doesn't know the path ahead for this character, and it's information that is changing my view of this character in real time, I, I will say, already by the end of season two, Game of Thrones has proven to be a wonderfully bu- a brutal show that uh, put some stuff on screen that might have made you uncomfortable, but you cu- couldn't turn away, and it's dealing with these harsh realities. I got to tell you. I got to tell you, um, I wonder what the Hound was going to do in this situation. He'd already saved her, right? He'd already saved her in the streets. That's a big, big thing. Save Sansa from the mob. Tyrion thanks him. Hound says, I didn't do it for you. Again, his sense of justice is there, but why he's doing it is, is yet to maybe even be determined by the Hound. I think he's trying to change along the way. But to this moment, I kind of had the tension of... And I think that the scene plays on it a little bit of just like brutal killer man alone with this young girl. It's it gives you kind of the uh-ohs and, and the hound goes against that. I love when she stands up and says, you're not going to hurt me. It's, it's more of a command. And he sees that fear in her eyes, gives her the reassurance. And it's one of the first times, even with all the other things he had done, it's one of the first times you... You as a viewer really kind to see the hound in a different light. And I love that moment. His own trauma has done this, right? And uh, it's, it's, I I could watch that scene. I was say, started to watch, I accidentally started to watch it again. Now, from there, a lot starts to happen with the hound. All right. We see him running into the brotherhood, uh, the connection with Arya. And without a doubt, his journey with Arya begins from a real simple point. Get the girl home, collect the money. He don't care about Arya Stark. Doesn't care at all. Um, I mean, quite his first words in that situation when, when he, he's pulled into the uh, tavern, 
Why, you know, he calls it the Stark bitch. Like, the Hound's not a nice guy. He's not like, let me save you, are you? It's to his benefit. But, hey, the forces at work here. Because the connection does begin to transform him. We all know he, he ends up protecting her. And maybe finding a lot of himself in her. That's why maybe he starts to really kind of want her to see the world as it is, which leads to this great moment. Shit! In the Seven Kingdoms! Plenty worse than me. I just understand the way things are. How many stars they got to be ahead before you figure it out? I love that clip. That's one of my favorite hound moments. Because, again, in that moment, you're like, yeah, he's right. Everything, everything he's saying, he's right about. But he wants Arya to know this. I always love when he, when he, when she tries to stab him and he's got his armor. He's upset. He, he does hit her, I do believe. Uh, right, knocks her down to the ground at least, and talks to her about good steel and armor. He, he wants her to learn this world. But to me, the why of that comes from him just resigning himself to the way it is, looking out upon it looking up on this brutal world, the world that formed him, and he knows it's not right. He knows it's killing him. Talk about that loss of humanity. It's long gone. He knows it. He just doesn't feel you can change it. That scene with Braun before the Battle of Blackwater Bay, again, going back to that episode, Braun is singing and celebrating the company of a good woman, <laughs> drinking, getting ready to go fight. And the hound doesn't. The hound would have killed him if they had a chance. And I, in that fight, I might have gone with the hound, right? I, I, I like. I think Braun's got some. You know, got that knife at his back, ready to uh, pull it out and and get into it and, and come out on top. I, I put a lot of money on the Braun and a lot and, and a lot of fights. I don't know if he could have defeated the hound in that moment. We didn't. Thankfully, didn't get to see the end. And by the way, Braun's another one of those characters that sees the world for what it is and therefore becomes popular in a sea of popular characters. But the journey with, with Ari and the Hound, again, we could pull a lot of moments. There's a lot there. Uh, you see their connection grow. You see the the moment with um, Bran. It's so... Talk about layered moments in Game of Thrones. Bran, again, not we know, not book. This is what we're definitely talking on the show. Not book. But running into Arya. And, and, and the Arya seeing what she could be. A knight of the seven kingdoms in her and her from her point of view, even though Brienne isn't a knight then, but just seeing it, and all of a sudden it turns, it turns on a dime, and Arya is aligned with the Hound. It's it's frustrating because we know Brienne's heart. We know she is not of this world, so to speak. Brienne is a is 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 on a different path. Brienne represents something different, but people can't see that. The Hound can't see it, and therefore Arya can't see it, and she knows the Hound. His view of the world, as brutal as it is, as dark as it is, as cynical as it is, is true. And it keeps playing out over and over again. She has no reason to doubt the hound in this moment, even with Brienne in front of her, pleading for her to go with her. Uh, uh, I mean, it makes sense. And, and, and Catelyn's dead by this time. So many, now we got a lot of beheaded and dead Starks. Arya's learned. So the hound is... At this point, to me, the the battle with Brienne, which is probably, my, again, my favorite sword fight in the show, if you can call it a sword fight, because it goes to biting and rocks, but that's why I like it. It is very realistic. It is very just tasking to watch. It's hard on the characters. It's hard on us. 
that to me is perhaps the true death of the hound. It is him without any sense of humanity and only this dark sense of the world. And he is resigned to it no matter what he wants to do, no matter what he does. Because up until his actions continue to show us that he's got something in there. Again, uh, by maybe by now that heart is starting to turn a little gold. I don't know. But now, by the end of season four, we've got a laundry list of things he's done that you're like, you're almost there, Hound. You could change. You could be something else. You could redeem yourself. He doesn't see it. He sticks to his worldview. He's resigned to this loss of humanity. And he pays a price for it. He essentially dies. I do believe death frees him. And in that moment, we get some great stuff, right? We got Arya finding him, leaning down in front of him. And we get the hound saying some, you know, you've, if you're listening, you've heard it, but I'll just put the, you know, he says some brutal stuff here. So here we go. This is the end of season four, episode 10. Arya uh, leaves the hound for dead. Go on, girl. Another name off your list. You kept promising me. I cut down your butcher's boy, the ginger. He was begging for mercy. Please, sir, please don't kill me. Please, please. Bled all over my horse. Saddle stunk a butcher's boy for weeks. Your sister. Your pretty sister. I should have taken her. That night the black water burned. I should have fucked her bloody. At least I'd have one happy memory. Do I have to beg you? Do it. Do it. Do it. It takes the silver. Kill me. And walks away as he begs for death. Kill me. So much in that scene that we could talk about from Arya's point of view. Uh, it is so beautifully played by Maisie Williams. Um, just focusing on him in that scene, though. And why, again, why she doesn't kill him doesn't want to give him the quick death that he doesn't deserve, uh, has come to appreciate the hound, no doubt, but still season 40 is. He's still on her list, right? 
She could cross them off, but she doesn't. And then every bit of the lesson that he has been teaching, she's learned, literally taking the silver coins away that he took away from the father, the farmer, uh, earlier in their journey, right? She's been paying attention. And again, we could talk about Arya's point of view in this scene another time. I am drawn to the moments here where the hound starts listing off the things he's done, Micah, and the things he should have done, right? He's talking about, uh, quite frankly, quite frankly, brutally uh, raping Sansa. That's, it's, it's harsh. He's just saying it. But it's so weird because you watch it and you watch Rory McCann play it out, especially just hearing that scene that he's referencing uh, just moments ago. It's like, I don't believe the hound in that moment. I think he's trying. I think he's trying to, in his final moments, as he pleads for day, he just wants to die because he has completely lost his humanity, but he's starting to go through the list of things he's done. And it's almost like at this point he has to convince himself that he was worse in his heart than he actually was. The Micah moment's true. Again, a different time. Not a good thing. And it's tough to hear him describe poor Micah's murder. But the Hound didn't see it as anything other than duty back then. So he just describes it as such. And it was what it was to the Hound. But it's there. It's something that's in his conscious. It's right there, right? He knows it wasn't a good thing, what he did to Micah. And maybe that's part of his journey towards atonement. Maybe that's where it began. Who knows? But there's something in him just trying to say something he isn't or wasn't in that scene. We, we know the truth. We know the truth. He didn't even come close to doing what he said he, quote, should have, shouldn't have done or should have done. And we're glad he didn't. But that's because that's who he is, right? But he can't connect with that. Can't connect with all that. The world around him beats that out of him, as it always has. But to me, death frees him. Much like Jon Snow's death on the wall even when he's brought back, frees him. This, this death, even though he doesn't die, and even though he's not bought, brought back from the other side, he's just simply nursed back to health by Brother Ray, I, I think it frees him. And when we find him again, though, uh, the Hound, as we all can see in that episode, when he returns, he's trying to disconnect trying to find some peace, very telling that in the Sansa story, he says, I just, you know, would have had one moment of joy in my whole life. He never had joy. Yeah, how could you? You're six and your face is burned by your brother and your father's like, yeah, it's all good. Never had joy. That's why even now, with the, with the, with the world as tough as it might be right now, as, as tough as the world always is, um, make sure you take a moment to celebrate small, simple joys. Because that ties you to your own humanity. The Hound lost that. Um, but it's interesting how they play it here. And again, this is where we might find it different in the books. That's for sure. 
But on the show, again, because also you have to see it. This is also the big difference. You can go an entire book with a character named Reek and not know that it's Theon until you reveal it on the page. You can't do that on a television program. They can't be like, hey, is that guy over there, the hound? No, he's called the Gravedigger. Sure looks like Rory McCann. <laughs> you can't do that on the show. It's played a little differently. And this whole sequence, that whole episode, to me, is about him. He, he is trying to find peace. He is trying to find change. He's trying to find that humanity. But he's also it's he's trying to be something that he cannot be. You can't imagine, you know, he's got a little bit of allegiance to Brother Ray, obviously. He's helping them, helping them build, and he's recovering, and he's eating food, and he doesn't really have a weapon, and he's off being just something else. He's not the hound, but how long was that going to last? I'm not even talking about going off and killing people or anything like that. How long was that going to last? It wasn't him, unfortunately. He couldn't, he couldn't allow that to be him. Again, he might want to change, but the world doesn't change, and again, he knows that. That's... Again, this lesson of resignation. He knows that. And so when the uh, when, uh, when, when when Brother Ray and his followers are killed, it's part of the brotherhood. I mean, he's back in, right? We're kind of cheering for it. We're kind of rooting for it. But it's interesting when you go back to that, you know, is it for true revenge? Is it justified revenge? Or is he going back to fill his soul the only way he knows how to kill? Because this is the way of the world. I've always gone back to that episode because it plays out again when it starts. Like, uh, he's the hound. He's a little sad. He uh, wants to find himself. He's finding finding religion. He's going to find peace. Nope, he's got an axe and he's going to go back and kill. And you're you're again, it's kind of fist pumping. You're rooting for it, right? Because you want the hound to be the hound. But it's sad to watch. It's tragic to watch. He knows no other way. Truly, he has lost his humanity. He does start to find, uh, question himself even more, and I'm going to jump ahead to season seven with him finding his purpose longer sequence here. Uh, this is when they go back to, with the Brotherhood, uh, they go back to uh, where the farmer and the daughter were, where they find them dead. We know that it ends up him, uh, he buries them, a nod, a nod to the gravedigger. Uh, but uh, he has this interesting exchange with Barrack. I've known you a long time, Dundaren. I, I think the first time we met was at that tournament. And I always thought you were dull as dirt. <laughs> you're not bad. I don't hate you. Don't like you, but you're not bad. Thank you, Clegane. That warms the heart. But there's nothing special about you. You're right about that. So why does the Lord of Light keep bringing you back? I've met better men than you, and they've been hanged from crossbeams or beheaded. They'll just shut themselves to death in a field somewhere. None of them came back. So why you? You think I don't ask myself that? Every hour of every day? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? What does the Lord see in me? I don't know. I don't understand our Lord. Your Lord. I don't know what he wants from me. I only know that he wants me alive. 
If he's so all-powerful, why doesn't he just tell you what the fuck he wants? Again. Come over here. Don't worry. The fire won't bite. So here we go. I the hounds goes over to the fire with Thoros. It's my fucking luck. I end up with a band of fire worshippers. There's a funny line. The boy who was burned like divine justice. is now no di experiencing that divine justice. I'll, I'll uh, shut them up because I could listen to Richard Dormer talk all day. Talk about a great voice there, man. This scene to me is the hound in his own way saying nice things about Beric. I don't dislike you. I wouldn't kill you. But he's confused. He's confused. He knows Beric. And knows that he, at least in his mind, his point of view, for what he can see, the Hound does not see anything great or grand in Beric Dondarrion. Can't understand this divine purpose, and we're all looking for some sort of divine purpose, even on a small level. The Hound, again, can't see this world. He's lost. He's lost to this world. He can't change his ways. He is resigned to who he is, but he'd like to know why. Why am I still here? Why did I not die? Why did Brother Way save me? Why am I back in this fight? Why can't you just be told this? Why do you have to search for it? It's confusing. As it should be. So his answer to this, after seeing, now he stares in the fire, he gets a vision, and suddenly, is he a believer believer? No. But suddenly he's tied into something bigger. Perhaps something a little better for him. And that's when he buries the father and uh, the daughter, the farmer and uh, his daughter who he had met and had, you know, robbed and left both of them to die. And this is, this is the, Jessica, the, the, the juxtaposition of that, right? These are the moments. And this is where the big switch to me starts to happen. But he wants to find his purpose. And along the way, I think that purpose is becomes what we know is his final moments. It is the mountain, but the mountain, what is there? Is there a great purpose in that? This is just a single fierce, big man, but a single man in a large scale battle, large scale war. The hound killing the mountain is not for the greater purpose of the realm. It's for him. It's the only way he'll be quenched. He felt he couldn't change. He felt he was resigned to the way of the world as he understood it, the way of the world that he learned early on. He could never change, but he could change Arya. He could change her. He did see a lot of himself in Arya along the way. Their journey taught him a lot of things, and that was one of it. And so when they're reunited, there's some good moments, good stuff, yes, but that all comes to me down to the final moment and the lesson. Yes, it is about humanity. But more importantly, it's about, hey, you can change. You don't have to go down this path. You don't have to go down the path that you're on. For whatever reason you're on it, it doesn't matter. Arya's is a little different. She was not burned in a fire at six. Harsh world for her as a young girl in this, in this realm. But she comes to that path from a different point of view, but she's on the path. And that's why the Hound wants to change it. And so when he does change her path to me that is part of his great purpose he finds it in that moment in Arya the girl who had the hound on her list calls him Sandor 
And finally, finally, Sandor Clegane has rediscovered his humanity, rediscovered himself, and realized his purpose. Go home, go. Fire will get her. Or one of the Dothraki. Or maybe that dragon will eat her. Doesn't matter, she's dead. And you'll be dead too if you don't get out of here. I'm going to kill her. You think you wanted revenge a long time? I've been after it all my life. It's all I care about. And look at me. Look at me! You want to be like me? You come with me. You die here. Thank you. There you go. Sandor Clegane goes off to face his brother and get that revenge. Die in the process, but find peace finally. But to me, this was his purpose, to show Arya and, and perhaps show us that humanity can be found even in the darkest of times, in the darkest of moments, and you can find your own humanity no matter how far down the path you're on. So, Nick, yeah, to answer your question, this is, to me, the greater purpose of the Hound. We found it. He found it. Sandor Clegane has a lot to teach us all. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I want to learn more and more about what Game of Thrones and the Song of Ice and Fire teaches us. The morals, the lessons, the moments. I love the hows, I love the whats. Let's start really digging into the whys. We're also going to keep looking ahead, getting ready for Fire and Blood 2, getting ready for House of the Dragon, Game of Thrones, Ice of Fire, the Song of Ice Fire is a world is a world it's so rich fun to crawl around in so we can do it all study the maps study the moments study the houses study the hearts of all the characters in it you can follow me at Cadnapsock. go to cadnapsock.com for information on all the things I do you can also follow Morning Drive Media at M Drive Media on Twitter and get updates on a lot of the shows that I am in or put out or am a part of or just happen to pass by through. So check all of that out. We'll see you next time here on Casterly Talk. Yeah.